Hi, this is a lecture on a couple of dramaturgical uh, phrases, terms used, among them trigger and heap, which is a phrase that was coined by David Ball in his book Backwards and Forwards. Uh, notes on reversals or raising stakes which I've covered a little bit before, but I'll sort of touch on again. Uh, inciting incident, which is related to trigger and heap. Obstacles and subtext. So think of this as a smorgasbord <laughs> of different things that I'll sort of address regarding uh, dramatic writing. So we'll start with heaps and triggers or trigger and heap, uh, fairly simple. Uh, and hopefully uh, something that doesn't require a lot of fretting about. And I think it's something that as audiences certainly and as writers would probably um, innately understand. Uh, but I will go through them uh, just in case uh, there's any question around this. Uh, so, um, like I said, it's a term that, that comes from David Ball and um, his uh, his book Backwards and Forwards, which is a wonderful book on playwriting, and uh, I think a lot of uh, schools uh, and conservatories use this book uh, to um, to teach playwriting. So, um, a good thing to remember is that uh, play is like dominoes. An event triggers the next event. Each trigger leads to a new heap, uh, which is an action. Uh, the heap action becomes the new trigger for another action. So often when this, when this topic is discussed in structure, uh, the example is um, a row of dominoes, right? One domino moves, it sets the others in motion, and so on and so forth. So a play is like dominoes. One event triggers the next. Each trigger leads the new, to, to a new heap, equal action. That heap becomes a new trigger for another action, and things snowball from there. Um, yes, there can be more than one trigger for an action. One trigger can lead to two or more simultaneous heaps of action. Um, David Ball always says, never skip a trigger and heap. Just like dominoes have to collide into each other to keep momentum, so do the triggers and heaps of a play. Um, so an example that's sometimes used for this in fiction is Harry Potter. In book six, uh, Harry Potter receives the Half-Blood Prince's potions book. That's the trigger which um, aids him in creating the best the best Felix Felios good luck potion, that's the heap, which he uses to remove a memory for Dumbledore, but he also texts Ron before a huge Quidditch match, Kidditch match, sorry, that he spiked his drink with a potion, which in fact he did not, leading Ron to believe he had luck on his side, only to find out that he did it all himself. That's double heaps and triggers. Um an example that sometimes people use, not a huge 
uh, Harry Potter person for a lot of reasons um, among them. Some that I won't discuss here, but um, all to say here's a conclusion. An action. An action is a trigger and a heap. Each heap becomes the next action's trigger. Actions are like dominoes always colliding into the next. This is something that you can learn fairly easily. Um, not rocket science. Um, so, you know, I guess a way to think about this in terms of plays is uh, often the play uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is used for this. Um, first of all, it's a very, the, the dramaturgy of that play is so um, overt uh, and in your face. So it, it makes for, um, you can sort of see the actions very clearly in that play. Um, so for example, uh, Martha yells, yells, uh, an obscenity of some kind. Uh, George provokes Martha because of this. Um, George moves toward the door. Martha yells at George, the doorbell rings, George ignores the doorbell, George fake spits, Martha yells at George, George tells Martha to answer the door, Martha tells George to answer the door, Martha insults George, George taunts Martha, Martha insults George, George taunts Martha, George gets Martha a drink, Martha says she's thirsty, George makes pig noises, Martha calls George a pig, George explains his resistance to kissing Martha, Martha questions why George won't kiss her, George refuses to kiss Martha, Martha asks George to kiss her, George and Martha laugh, George tells Martha she's going bald, Martha calls George bald, George calls Martha old, George insults Martha's teeth, Martha yells at George, George takes Martha's drink, Martha asks, Martha asks for more ice for her drink, George and Martha laugh, Martha calls George a phrase maker, George finishes Martha's thought, Martha's thought and Martha can't finish her sentence. That's like a huge action sequence, right? Full of trigger and heap. The heap starts with Martha yelling at George, right? She yells an obscenity. George counters that by provoking Martha. That gets that action then becomes a move George moving toward the door. That triggers Martha yelling at George. Then the doorbell rings, becomes a heap on the action. George ignores the doorbell, so that's another heap on the action um, because it, it makes the action not turn where it's supposed to be. Um, George fake spits, which is another trigger, which then makes Martha yell at George. George tells Martha to answer the door, so we've got this idea of the triangulation that's happening in that moment. Martha tells George to answer the door instead. Martha insults him. George taunts her. Martha insults George. George taunts her. So we get into this kind of trigger-trigger situation that's heaping at the same time. George gets Martha a drink, um, and that's a clue, I think, for actors playing George, it's kind of like a routine they've done before, right? He, he already expects how she's going to respond. Martha, Martha says she's thirsty, and that could be interpreted as a taunt, or is she heaping on that? Is George getting a drink an act of provocation? Is Martha saying she's thirsty an act provoking George because he's taken that action? George then makes pig noises, right? Oh, she's so thirsty, she's like a pig. Martha calls George the pig, right? Which is another heaping on the trigger that's just been instated. George explains his resistance to her by kissing her. It's a fascinating moment to turn there. And then Martha questions, um, 
I'm sorry. George explains his resistance to kissing her, so she does not. He does not want to kiss her, and Martha questions why this is so. He continues to refuse the kiss. Martha asks George to kiss her. There's this moment of tension between them, and then they laugh. Uh, and then George tells Martha she's going bald uh, as another trigger moment, um, sort of a trigger and a heat moment. Uh, Martha calls George bald, so she counters back. George calls Martha old, right? And it just goes back and forth. Uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is built almost entirely around Trigger and Heap. It's really fascinating. And I think that you can see there on kind of the outline of, um, of how it's built that it really helps. Um, it helps isolate how um, how this works. So a trigger is, an, is the first event of an action. That's just useful to understand. It's the first event of an action. A heap is the second event of an action, which can also serve as a trigger to a second event. So it is both the second event of a trigger, but it can also lead to the next action. Uh, so you can have a double heap uh, from a, a one trigger. Um, in, um, in Backwards and Forwards, David Ball talks about this at great length. Uh, if you don't know the book, Technical Manual for Reading Plays. And um, uh, David Ball used to teach at uh, uh, Duke University and also taught at Carnegie Mellon and also was a dramaturg at the Guthrie Theater for many years. Um, and this book, Backwards and Forwards, uh, as I said before, is a staple in a lot of uh, play analysis courses. Uh, and basically, it's a, a method for understanding how dramatic literature works. Um, Ball treats plays as if they were consciously designed machines, which they are. Uh, and, and his approach is that they must be disassembled to their constituent parts and considered on a mechanical level in order for a reader, and ideally a director, to master their workings. Um, I'm not sure that I entirely agree with that. Um, I will say that it's great to sort of disassemble a play and figure out how it's put together. Uh, I question whether there is this notion of mastery uh, over a piece of work. Um, I, I beg to think not. I beg to think that actually uh, what you want to do as a director is to let the work teach you what it's doing <laughs> as you're trying to disassemble its constituent parts um, so that you can better uh, come to terms with it and create an encounter with it. Um, obviously, a director needs to be in charge uh, in certain rehearsal rooms. Uh, but I think the hierarchy around a director being a master of a piece uh, can be problematic. Um, I think I'd rather use the word conduct. You know, I think like conductors conduct an orchestra. I think that's what directors in more traditional and conventional settings do best, um, is that they're conducting the event. So they're kind of steering it and guiding it and hopefully um, making a space for trust and play to be operative while still, of course, having a point of view and so forth, which is why we talk about often in the field uh, specific director staging uh, specific works, because 
obviously it's it's coming from uh, a perspective um, um, that sometimes is quite strong. You know, it's a take. It's like a director's take on something or a director's cut on a specific work. Um, so one of the things about David Ball and backwards and forwards, again, where this term trigger and heap comes from, is that Ball um, has a beef with loose analyses of plays. Um, uh, he says that, for example, a play like Hamlet is not about uh, a melancholy Dane who cannot decide whether to kill his uncle. Um, uh, and instead, uh, David Ball offers a notion of precise reading and the fact that plays are a series of actions. And he divides these actions into triggers and heaps. The image suggests, for example, a fired pistol with a resultant heap of a dead body. And what he means is that an initial action in a play, which is a trigger, will result in a second action, the heap, just as a falling domino, as I've said before, will inevitably set some other domino in motion. The heap itself will become the next trigger until a plot chain resolves in a new uh, place of equilibrium. So it's looking at the idea of chain of reaction, basically. Um, uh, to put it in a, in a different way. Uh, plays and balls terms are nothing more than an arrangement of triggers and heaps. Uh, some plays um, have large external actions. So in the Scottish tragedy, Lady Macbeth learns of a prophecy, and so she decides to conspire with her husband, while other plays may involve subtle, even hidden, chains of reactions of cause and effect. The language games and power grabs in Samuel Beckett's work, for example, uh, and often in Susan Laurie Parks' work, etc. Um, Ball posits that in good plays there is no trigger without a heap and no heap without a trigger. Uh, and so Ball uh, uses Hamlet as his test case um, and he, he takes apart what is called the plot of the play and he does this by moving forward through the text. Uh, a ghost appears but does not speak. What does this cause? Later, Hamlet joins the night watch. How does the ghost react? Hamlet follows the ghost. What does he find? So by such tracking, every individual moment of the play is understood in relationship to others and slowly a cumulative understanding of more general concepts like theme or tone is developed. Uh, Ball's method method of analysis is to check all findings by retracing the actions of the play from the end to the beginning. So what Ball advocates is actually to read the ending of a play, uh, you know, and go backwards. Um, hence the book is called Backwards and Forwards. So if, like he said, if you, if you look at the play from its ending and go backwards uh, and retrace the actions of the play from the end to the beginning, you'll actually see the chain of events much closer and much clearer. Um, Ball advocates to start with a final heap and then find the trigger that led directly to it, moving backwards until the entire chain is established uh, for the reader. Um, So it's a, 
it's useful to to look at I think um, this notion uh, because it helps clarify some things. Uh, I will say that um, the quantitative approach to play analysis can sometimes uh, be troubling. And what I'll say by this is that there's a school of analysis in acting, so which I don't think is comes at the same time as David Ball's backwards and forwards, but it, it might be related. Um, which has to do, it's a, it's a system of analysis called actioning. So basically, on every line, you know, what is the action that's being played? Um, and actors are, are often um, told in this kind of analysis to attach a verb to every line of dialogue. So that what they're doing, no matter what the line is, is they're playing a very specific verb. One, and usually one word. So, you know, push, pull, hop, jump. Seduce, fight, back, uh, turn, uh, forward, you know, like uh, this actioning approach to text, which uh, was favored probably sort of in the latter part of the 20th century in a lot of acting conservatories. And, and it's still used today to some degree. Uh, has also been applied to playwriting, you know, so looking at a scene in a play and then going through it and analyzing, you know, doing a verb for each line and what is what is the verb that's being played by the actor to achieve this line of dialogue. Um, actioning does not work with all plays. <laughs> and I think that's, that's one of its fallacies. It also, you know, I think it, so plays are, of course, a series of actions, but... Um, and there is cause and effect, you know, uh, often, but not always. Um, but sometimes the cause and effect is more, um, like in absurdist plays, you have to trace the cause and effect a little bit differently than you would in a more um, photorealistic play. Um, but what I will say is that there's, a, in the constructed event of creating a play, that actioning may not be the only way to help you move forward. I think that it's a very useful way to begin scene writing because you're basically writing a series of one word verb sequences uh, and attaching lines of dialogue to them. And it can help anatomize whether something is indeed happening in your play or not, um, or if people are just you know chatting with it, with one another, which is not helpful um, ultimately. But I think that one of the things that it negates is that sometimes uh, you cannot apply an actioning for each line because the text itself is resisting that kind of approach. So so I think this one size fits all idea around looking at trigger and heap and looking at actioning, which I think is, like I said, the related form term that is used, I should say, in um, acting classes, uh, can sometimes lead to a, 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 you know, awry. Uh, I'm just going to mention that as, a, as just a brief contestation of things. Um, I'm going to go adjacent to this idea for a second. Uh, to talk about rhythm in drama. And uh, 
there's a, a book that sometimes is taught in conjunction with David Ball's book, Backwards and Forwards, and it's a book called Rhythm and Drama, and it was written by Kathleen George in 1980, uh, and has been used a lot in classes uh, devoted to playwriting and directing. Kathleen George, in her book, Rhythm and Drama, defines rhythm in the following manner. The pattern of mathematics of a play in motion, functioning to produce in audiences a completed progression of physical, emotional, and intellectual responses by which they arrive at meaning. That pattern is recognizable through repetition and change of some elements. Now, this is a very, very broad definition of rhythm and drama, uh, but what I think is interesting here and worth looking at is that Kathleen George does not equate rhythm with pace or tempo, but rather uses the word rhythm to all aspects of a play that are subject to changes across space or time. So rhythm is not just a metrical uh, function, but a larger compositional idea. And I think this is very exciting. Um, so in uh, Kathleen George's book, Rhythm and Drama, uh, she deals with the idea of rhythm in an open scene. So an open scene, uh, if you're thinking about uh, working with directors, uh, is typically a, a short dialogue exchange in which characters and context are left deliberately ambiguous so that the scene can be played in a number of ways. So the play Love and Information by Carol Churchill readily comes to mind, right? It's a series of scenarios, short scenes that are open. And then directors and actors make choices about how to play those ambiguous scenes because they're so open. Um, so what George does in, in open scenes, for example, is she studies the subtle patterns of dialogic alternation that suggest general truths about the scene, even if there's no other context present. So if you don't know who the characters are and what the dramatic situation is, perhaps, so what are the dialogic, what are the clues in the dialogue that suggest what the context might be, right? That's sort of like the sleuthing work that happens in an open scene. By combing through the raw data of who speaks, for how long, what words are repeated, what, what responses are positive and which responses are negative, George says that you can begin to establish fundamental relationships between characters that will hold true across various contextual interpretations. And in this method, um, she also says you can pin down the climax of a scene. Uh, so this is fascinating. What she's saying is that in an open scene, you can still do the contextual uh, dramaturgy and make choices, right? It's not, it's not willy-nilly. You actually do have to sit there with the text and maybe work harder to figure out what the context could be, what are your, what are your options, and what, how to understand what may be 
the truth. And I love this kind of idea around rhythm, which is combing through the raw data, literally the raw data of who speaks for how long, repeated words, positive versus negative responses, and so on. And that starts to give you an idea of what the rhythm is. Uh, and the rhythm is teaching you what the meaning is, uh, which is a great way to think about this. Um, and in plays where um, the context is given more clearly, uh, so plays that delineate character and, and setting and so forth, um, George still hunts down the repetition of sounds, words, and phrases and reveals their use and understanding uh, the scene work that occurs in the plays of Ibsen, Pinter, Albee, and Beckett. In the case of this book, Rhythm and Drama, a lot of her focus is on Ibsen, Pinter, Albee, and Beckett. Um, uh, in, in Waiting for Godot, uh, Samuel Beckett's play, Kathleen George uh, notes that Estragon has a tendency during the kind of vaudevillian exchanges with Vladimir to repeat lines uh, verbatim, right? To, to exactly... Uh, Vladimir will say something and Estragon will say a line that he's just said a minute ago. Um, even though the world or the, the energy field is changing around him, he tends to kind of repeat with the same phrase or words. Um, so George, Kathleen George says that with, these, with this idea of length of lines and positive versus negative statements, this makes her feel as if Vladimir is the more active and hopeful of the two characters because Vladimir is the one that's constantly changing and Estragon is refusing to change, right? He's just he's repeating lines they've said before or they're stuck, in other words. They're stuck and Vladimir uh, is someone that can move on. Um, it's a simple observation, but I think a useful one in terms of thinking about how one can write fixed characters, and one can write characters that change. Um, continuing here and looking at Rhythm and Drama by Kathleen George, she then looks at a scene in Uncle Vanya where the line, they've gone, they've gone, is repeated by five different characters. And each time they say this line, the line has a new meaning and a new purpose. Uh, she argues that the structure of five repetitions taken as a body, contains a climax, strained to the point of breaking, followed by an anticlimax. So, in George's opinion, uh, in this book, Rhythm and Drama, Chekhov's overall strategy is also his theme, right? Five repetitions taken to their climax to the point of breaking, followed by an anticlimax. Five repetitions taken as a body, containing a climax to the point of breaking, followed by an anticlimax. Five repetition issues. So it's like that one of the ways he builds, you know, I think in a prior lecture I talked about somewhat of the circularity or the seeming circularity of Chekhov's plays or a lot of his plays. This is a useful idea to think about how there's this notion of the repeat. Um, a, a very clear example of this, uh, you know, super clear because it's so blunt, uh, in a good way, I think, um, 
uh, and this is no value attachment to it. It's more like good in the sense that it's functioning and it works on stage. Uh, uh, Debbie Tucker Green um, has a play called Generations. And in Generations, uh, she's basically doing the five repetitions. What she's doing is she stages a scene uh, and the scene repeats with the exact same dialogue, pretty much, um, several more times. The whole play is built that way. So, so what changes are the characters that are saying the lines and the historical time frame. But actually what they say is exactly the same, except as the play moves forward, there's a moment where things radically shift. And But we go through a sequence, pretty, I think it's, I'm trying to remember now, three or four repetitions at the very least, where it's the same dialogue, but it's enacted by different characters, different situations. The play Generations, as it's called, is about generations. Uh, and it's about what doesn't change over time, right? So it's about how, um, given the state of the world, the family is in, uh, the play looks at, um, uh, a lot of the play focuses on um, both corporate malfeasance and also settler colonialism and how characters are caught in systems, right? So they're caught in systems that don't change and the language is sort of doing that as well. The systems don't change, the characters repeat um, until they get to a point where they can break from these systems or have the illusion of breaking. The play is, is um, devastating in terms of how it plays out. I won't spoil it for you. But this is a, also an interesting dramaturgical strategy to do kind of five repetitions, climax, point of breaking, anti-climax. Um, one of the things that Kathleen George does in Rhythm and Drama is that she doesn't stay on the level of word-for-word -word close reading, um, but she looks at the patterning uh, of methods under the idea of rhythm. So if a character speaks in a certain manner to another character in a certain number of scenes, do they take, and they take an opposite approach in another scene, what is the conclusion, therefore, right? So if there's a pattern that's established and the pattern breaks, what does this mean for the play, right? It's one of the ways that I think audiences learn and understand plays is how the plays are sort of, how plays are teaching tools in a way. If we're trying to examine a situation that's presented in a play, characters get into a pattern and a rhythm with each other, and at some point that rhythm breaks, that means something has been learned, either by the audience, by the characters, by the situation that they're in. Something has changed. And then the notion becomes, what do we learn from that, right? Like, what is this about a pattern breaking? Is this just about an interruption? What's going to happen? And I think it's also related to the F-trigger and heap, right? So if we get into a situation that feels fairly routine, suddenly there's a trigger, which could be an opposite approach is taken when characters have usually been behaving one way to each other, that initiates a heap, then we get into action. So, um, uh, uh, Kathleen George in Rhythm and Drama uh, looks at the notion, this from an actor's perspective, so this notion of beats and scenes, informal divisions of scenes, commonly referred to as beats, where there's a change in tactic, um, George calls it a rhythmic alternation. So 
uh, it's not just a change in tactic, but the rhythm changes in the scene. Again, fairly obvious, but uh, I think worth noting. And certainly maybe a different way of approaching text where tactic is not so clear um, or is not operative. Again, this goes back to the idea of actioning. There are some plays that are not built this way, um, but thinking about them in terms of rhythm actually allows you to think about the writer's tactic, right? Instead of the character's tactic, the writer's tactic in creating a shift. And what does that shift then? How does that shift generate meaning? So I'll give you a visual example. You know, a dancer is dancing a sequence of repeated gestures. Um, suddenly that new gestures enters that sequence. What does that sequence mean? How does it trigger a next series of gestures, right? So this is the idea of composition. Um, uh, a lot of people criticize Kathleen George's book, Rhythm and Drama, because they say that uh, George takes the, uh, the definition of rhythm to a point where it doesn't, where it loses its meaning. Um, But uh, I still, you know, I, I, I want to hold on to rhythm and drama for just a second because I think it's useful. So in, um, in George, there's a quote uh, where she's looking at scenic design. Um, and uh, this is um, a quote uh, talking about design. Adolf Appiah's designs, which he calls rhythmic spaces, are excellent examples of repetition, change, and progression in the visual arts. Columns, levels, and spaces repeat and design. The spaces invite action. Our eyes follow the lines formed by shadows. Masses repeated, the linear form of steps. There is alternation between mass and space, and we are forced to be aware of what is solid and what is free. So some people argue that that kind of illustration that George gives, um, which is basically looking at how things are differentiated, um, is a key part of analysis, right? That, that what you're looking at is you're looking for the difference. Um, and that, you know, somebody viewing a play might only see uh, the change between shadow and light and may not go beyond this. Yeah, but... I think that uh, a way to think about rhythm and drama is to think about it as a pattern of tension and release, inhalation and exhalation. So this connection to breath, that rhythm is connected to breath, and it's like, where is the inhale? Where is the exhale? Where do things bunch up? Where is it allowed to breathe? That is a patterning, and that is a way of thinking about dramaturgy, and that it one thing that it helps do is that it takes the idea of the scenic design and binds it to the idea of understanding a play. So it goes beyond the notion of staying uh, purely in the literary realm. In, in other words, what one of the things that rhythm, uh, sorry, Kathleen George does in rhythm and drama is to take the idea of rhythm uh, and apply it. Uh, to composition uh, in a way that allows 
the possibility of analyzing work that may not be dialogue heavy, for example, or that with an or work that has an understanding, a deep understanding that dialogue is evoking image, is evoking spaces of construction, is evoking composition, right? So the composition on the page that leads to the composition on stage is guided and is initiated by rhythm. I think this is really helpful, uh, and I think that might be useful. Um, and again, I'm not saying that trigger and heap is not helpful. Uh, all I'm saying is that there's that it might might be worth um, considering and amplifying the idea of trigger and heap. Obviously, what trigger and heap does. Um, is it allows for, um, again, depending on the kind of play it is, for a very clear um, uh, notion of how to how to describe uh, action, right? That triggers another action, that triggers another action. Um, you know, and I, I'm going to mention a writer that, um, who actually, I would say, stole most of his ideas uh, from Harold Pinter, uh, and that is a um, the writer David Mamet, who's not a writer I care to mention very much uh, these days. But um, what I will say, because he did write plays uh, and has written plays, and sometimes can be useful on just a super core level. Um, um, is especially his early work, because of the connection to Pinter, um, you see very, very clear examples of trigger and heap in the dialogue, and how and how the plays are structured, um, overt, which is why people talk a lot about the acts of um, aggression in his writing, now, the acts of aggression in his writing and in and in Pinter's writing although they differ in terms of their mechanisms, are attached to this idea of a very sharp attack with language and event that then triggers something, another sharp attack with language and event. Um, so when a compelling writer to look, about, look at this uh, relationship to the history of kind of writers for performance that, that um, are interested in... Uh, what I almost call what I call a skeletal uh, approach to trigger and heap is to look at Sarah Kane, who I think takes that um, notion and and kind of strips it down to its barest level. So if you look at a play like Blasted, it's almost entirely composed of trigger and heap situations. Um, you know, uh, Ian does something, Kate reacts. The reaction could be uh, one of her seizures, you know, the reaction could be um, her avoiding him. The reaction could be she acquiesces. Ian then backs away. Ian then, does, right, the whole play, the entire play, especially the first act, is a series of triggers and heaps. Um, and, and, you know, Blasted is very much a play influenced by, you know, Sarah Kane wrote it while she was in drama school. Um, and it's very much influenced by the work that she was reading, right? And um, 
that she is consciously, she's consciously kind of doing Pinter <laughs> in that first act, um, uh, spinning it in her own way, but very much in that vein. Uh, and then the play in the second act sort of enters a Beckettian realm. Uh, Beckett, you know, sort of with aspects of Shakespeare, you know, and aspects of Artaud. But still in the second act of Blasted, you have Trigger and Heat. What happens in the second act of Blasted is that Sarah Kane, she was incredibly good at structure, takes away the... I wouldn't say she removes the context. I think that would be wrong to say. One of the things that she does is she eliminates the causal chain. So because the larger causal chain in the play is about the, the, the fact that Ian is a representative, not a representative consciously, but I think someone that represents, in terms of the politics of the play, the Western world. Uh, and settler colonialism and a, and a white dominant uh, culture. Uh, and so one of the things that she does in the second half of the play is that Ian becomes a symbol, basically, um, for that uh, as the play progresses. Uh, and that symbol starts to enact enact. Uh, actions in life and in the afterlife of that character that are residues of histories of white dominant culture savaging the planet and savaging um, uh, through colonization a great part of the world. So in a way, you know, the play sort of smashes itself and smashes the idea of causal chains because what it's saying is that by the time we get to the second half, in this kind of like post 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 war uh, landscape, uh, you can't trace the cause. I mean, that's sort of the brilliance of that play is that what happens is that in a way, everyone is lost in the second half, and you can't even go find the origin necessarily. Whereas in the first half of the play, the the trigger and heap action sequencing feels is and feels very contained. It is between these two figures and how they are affecting one another. Uh, and then the second half of the play, we sort of see how these figures are situated. Um, and the causal chain between what happens between the soldier and Ian uh, is less clear. Although they are triggering actions, and there's plenty of heap in terms of what occurs, but the heaps are uh, work like aftershocks in the writing, um, rather than a domino effect. In fact, there is no domino effect in the second half. What happens is that something is set in motion, and then all the heaps kind of become aftershocks and and you can't even find the first domino. Um, fascinating um, the way she builds it, and I think that perhaps useful to think about as you think about um, going backwards and forwards with the writing and how um, action is broken down. Uh, 
backwards and forwards is used a lot also in screenwriting uh, as a as a way of thinking about craft. Um, so this is a, a quote from David Ball where he says, an event is anything that happens. Fairly clear. Uh, when one event causes or permits another, another event, the two events together comprise an action. So to have an action, uh, David suggests that there needs to be a causal relationship. One event causes or permits another event. The two events together comprise an action. Um, a ball is thrown across a net. The response to that ball being thrown across the net constitutes the action. The first sort of trigger is not a, in and of itself an action. It necessitates the response in order for the, the work to move forward, for the game to move forward, right? And actions are a primary building block. Um, so action is basically a springboard. It gives you an impetus for a story and a play is a series of events that are connected by action. Um, action is the result of an event. The incident brings about conflict and the action is a response to the conflict. So dramatic action has two parts. Again, going here uh, to backwards and forwards. Find the first event of each action, then the second, then the connection between the two. Um, uh, Ball suggests in backwards and forwards that you can't have an action without a response or a reaction. So you have to take the time to locate the first event of each action and try to discover the link between actions. Um, and that that's actually what's being crafted. So here's a, a sort of example that Ball uses in his book. In real life, every day is about connected events. Uh, a person is in a kitchen making lunches for their children, let's say, who sit at a table eating breakfast. Once they have finished eating, they grab a lunch and rush out the door. The events lead to other events. One event requires a second event. Making the lunch uh, is connected to then grabbing the lunch and rushing out the door. Um, that's in a, a, an example that Ball uses. And this is uh, the domino effect. The cumulative event um, is produced when one event initiates a succession of similar events. Ripple effect, chain reaction. Um, And it's one of the ways that the plot moves forward. Um, action producing events are the glue that holds a story together and takes the action into the story. For a story to have cohesiveness, the dominoes need to connect. In other words, a script must have a sequence of events that are united. Um, David Ball encourages writers to find each action, find each action's first event, and then its second event, trigger and heap. Um, the story works better if the dominoes connect. This is according to Ball. Reading a script backwards and forwards enables you to make sure you recognize its cohesiveness. Going backwards is from going backwards from event to event. You have to understand the immediate, and you have to look at what happened prior. Um, uh, the beauty behind this kind of script analysis is that it becomes very easy to see where things are not working. Right. So this is 
I think this is actually a very good tool for rewriting. Uh, but anyway, going backwards exposes the blanks, exposes what's not working. It's a great way to determine if the events are being manipulated in the writing or if they feel organic. Um, going forwards allows for unpredictable possibility. Going backwards exposes that which is required. It is reflective. It has already happened. So when you look objectively at a script, it becomes much easier to identify where there are problems, right? Uh, how, are you, how do you trace the events? Um, how do you rear engineer the work and make sure that it's holding up? Um, in addition to reading a script backwards to connect every action, um, writers, of course, are also building an audience's anticipation. So this technique uh, ball calls forward, right? This is the forward, right? The most important thing is the concept of forward. What, what happens next? Um, and it makes a difference between According to Ball, a good script and a bad script. The script without a forward is nothing by wishful thinking on the part of the writer. So Ball says, if you master your forward, the audience will be more interested in your script. The forward is not foreshadowing. To make this clear, foreshadowing is used as a plot device to help make the story believable. Um, foreshadowing's job is to reveal, but the forward is what creates dramatic tension and pulls the audience deeper into the story. Um, and so... In David Ball's book, you know, he makes a comparison between dramatic and non-dramatic writing. Uh, Ball says that there's a distinct difference between dramatic writing um, and non-dramatic writing. Um, and that there's a distinctive rhythm that can be found in all writing, of course, uh, in the same manner that a piece of music has variations in tempo. Um, the cadence in a melody crescendos, the volume rises, the listener can feel the tension in the music, the body responds. In film... Uh, the movement of action goes from scene to scene, which is prodded largely by conflict. It creates a rhythm. So here's going back to the idea of Kathleen George, rhythm and drama. Each scene must have it to keep an audience interested. So in the same way that a piece of music is high and low, a uh, play should have the same, you know, in the same way that each measure of music is connected. So every scene should connect to the previous scene. In addition, a good scene, according to Ball, should open with a question and end with a question. This kind of writing device will ask the audience and keep them, will taunt the audience and keep them in a state of anticipation. So every scene should connect to the previous scene. All scenes should open with a question and end with a question, thus moving it forward. Ball says, a forward is any of a myriad of devices, techniques, tricks, maneuvers, manipulations, appetizers, tantalizers, teasers that make an audience eager for what's coming up. A forward is a structural strategy. So in the, in the book, uh, 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 Ball talks about the film The Graduate, which from 1967. So it was written by Buck Henry and Calder Willingham. It was directed by Mike Nichols, um, and it's adapted from a novel. And the, um, the writers effectively keep the audience suspended from scene to scene. We don't quite know. We know the dramatic situation, but we don't know qu quite uh, what how we're moving from one sequence to the next necessarily. We have a protagonist, his name is Benjamin Braddock. He recently graduated college. Um, he moves back home and is seduced by the wife of his father's business partner. Uh, you know, he's also anxious about his future and is trying to 
you know, to find himself after college. And so one of the one of the useful things about that script is that the writers use the duality of the two characters. So they represent different generations and are opposites. Uh, ben is naive. Uh, he's turned off by the adult world, completely out of his element, fish out of water. And Mrs. Robinson, who's the antagonist, to here we get into protagonist and antagonist, is unhappy in her marriage, sexually frustrated, and is fire to his ice, in other words. So... Ben goes to a graduation party uh, that he doesn't want to, that he doesn't even want to be at, and Mrs. Robinson um, wanders into his eye eye line, and she's been watching him all evening, and basically she disrupts his life. There are a series of forwards in the scenes that follow that shift the focus of the story to a potential premise, which is an affair between uh, Ben. And Mrs. Robinson, this maneuver keeps the audience waiting, right, with anticipation. Will this? Will there be an affair? Won't there be an affair? What is the affair? What's going to happen? Um, ben is a character, this protagonist that is that needs change and needs to have change in his life, and needs to find himself. I mean, that's a struggle. Um, Mrs. Robinson wants to ride home. She's kind of working him, and Ben is reluctant, but she persuades him. And from the moment. Ben agrees to drive her home, the rhythm of the film uh, shifts and things really build. And so uh, the character of Mrs. Robinson, who really is manipulating him and is basically the one that holds the power in the relationship, lets uh, Ben know that she does not want to be home alone. He surrenders and he goes inside her house. Once inside, she offers him a drink and the intensity continues. And there's a scene between them where she says to him, and I'm just going to quote from the screenplay here, she says, uh, what do you drink, bourbon? And Ben says, look, uh, Mrs. Robinson, I drove you home, I was glad to do it, but I have some things in my mind, can you understand that? Mrs. Robinson says, yes. She nods. Ben says, all right. And Mrs. Robinson prepares drinks. What do you drink, Benjamin? Sorry to be this way, but I don't want to be left alone in this house. Ben says, why not? Mrs. Robinson says, please wait till my husband gets home. Ben says, when is he coming back? Mrs. Robinson says, I don't know. Drink? Ben says, no. But she hands him a drink anyway. And then Ben says to her, are you always this much afraid of being alone? She says, yes. And he says, well, why can't you just lock the doors and go to bed? Uh, so she has this plant, right? I think the audience is very aware that she is uh, maneuvering him. But the dialogue is very forward. You're kind of playing all these moves. Well, you know, I want to drink. No, I don't want to drink. When is your husband getting home? When is he coming back? I don't know. Are you all afraid to be alone? Yes. Uh, why don't you lock the doors? Like he, Ben is trying to get out of the situation. Mrs. Robin is kind of leading the situation. And, um, and the audience is suspended in this state of tension, right? Trying to figure out what's going to happen between them. Ben drinks. Um, Mrs. Robinson takes him upstairs, shows him a portrait of her daughter. And then, of course, this is where this reversal happens. So what happens is that Ben ends up falling in love with Mrs. Robinson's daughter. He sees the portrait. He's kind of instantly taken with this, the image of this young woman. Um, and, you know, that's going to be a turn in the plot. At the same time, 
while he's looking at the portrait, kind of mesmerized, Mrs. Robinson begins to undress and asks him for his help. Um, and, and so she says to him, there's another quote from the screenplay. Well, you unzip my dress. I think I'll go to bed. Ben scared. And he says, oh, well, good night. You know, he's kind of like, where are we going with this, right? And then she says, won't you unzip my dress? So she's very insistent. This is what I call the sharp attack, right? This is very Pinter. Um, Pinter was great at this, right? This sort of like the insistence of characters wanting to get their desires met, right? Will you unzip my dress? I think I'll go to bed. Won't you unzip my dress? With this idea of repetition and insistence. She's trying to get what she wants, right? She's kind of triggering and trying to get heap to happen, right? So she says, won't you unzip my dress the second time? And he says, I'd rather not. He's really deflecting. And she goes at it again. If you still think I'm trying to seduce you, dot, 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 Ben sort of is caught a little bit here and says, um, no, no, I don't at all. I, I just feel a little funny. And then Mrs. Robbins says, Benjamin, you've known me all your life. Ben says, I know, but and then Mrs. says, come on, it's hard for me to reach. So she's basically saying, look, I'm on the level. I'm not trying to seduce you. He pulls the zipper down. She says, thank you. And then she asks him, what are you so scared of? And he says, I'm not scared, Mrs. Robinson. So there's a kind of interesting flip that happens in the screenplay where she brings him to this point of connection, and literally a physical connection, right? He pulls the zipper down of the dress, and then she asks him a very pointed, very direct, again, another sharp attack question, what are you so scared of, right? Very direct. And then he's kind of backed into a corner, and he's like, ah, I'm not scared, uh, right? Um, so the tension is mounting, right? She's pursuing, and uh, and then he is, you know, he is basically freaking out, right? Uh, he's so nervous. He's so anxious. He's he's put in an, an incredible situation. Um, and, of course, you know, the, an audience sort of watching this is sort of delighted by the tension that's been building in the scene. Um, and in drama, you know, that's one of your jobs as a writer, make the audience want to hear or see what's happening next. Um, at, at any moment in the script, there are no forwards in place, fix it, right? The forward is the ultimate measure, and that is a true, and that is true of all forms of art. This is what David Ball says. Now, whether it doesn't matter what kind of work you're writing, Ball sort of stresses that it doesn't matter if it's sci-fi or it's thriller or action or drama or comedy, Understanding how action works to move the story forward is central. This is a central task. Uh, and part of the, that understanding comes by reading your script objectively, reading it backwards and then reading it forwards. It's a great way to locate, prob locate problem areas. Script is all about action, not dialogue. And mastering technique is not an option. Uh, this is a, an interesting point that, you know, it's something that I may have said uh, in another lecture, but I'll repeat it here, which is the script is all about action, not dialogue that action is what's driving it. Dialogue is a tool for that to occur, right? Um, and then, of course, there are writers that flip this, right, that, that are kind of saying dialogue comes first and the action is going to follow from the dialogue. Um, and I think if you look at people influenced by modernism and, and black modernism, uh, there's a kind of flip of this. There's a, you know, Susan Laurie Parks 
his work is interested in, in, in fugue-like and repetitions where the action sometimes does not move forward or it moves forward in clusters rather than in an immediate way that characters are kind of spiraling uh, in some fashion um, and that that spiraling leads to what feels like might be a forward in the script but it's functioning a little bit different so that the dialogue is kind of spinning itself into something. It's a very Gertrude Stein kind of move um, to the modernist poet. So this idea of like that the language is going to loop itself and create uh, a fugue-like state that then is going to allow for action to happen. Uh, so Laurie Parks talks about um, the, the idea of the archaeological dig, right, as a, as a way of centering her work uh, structurally, so that it's kind of digging and digging and digging and digging and digging until you hit bottom, right? That's one of the ways that she structures. Um, but I will say that she does do, so in a counter to all of this, that if you look at a play like Top Dog, Underdog, if you look at uh, even scenes from um, uh, the play Fucking A or In the Blood, um, she's very much doing cause and effect, forward action kind of writing. Um, uh, and, and certainly by the time you get to her play White Noise, uh, her more recent play, um, she's definitely doing that uh, in a very... In, one would argue a very conventional way. Um, but the convention is just that she's she's working on an action on a, in, a, in a way that's familiar, I think, to an audience, playing with tension and suspense. Um, and I think that some of this is uh, uh, useful, I think, uh, as you kind of work through... Um, What's interesting is that I'm going to sort of uh, shift to something else in a second, which is um, uh, the idea of inciting incident, because I think it's related and I think might be helpful in this regard, um, is that uh, actioning um, uh, can help you decide also if you're thinking about rhythm, I think referencing Kathleen George again, if you think about rhythm, can help you decide where you want to place your, your focus in a play. So sometimes when you're writing, you sort of lose your focus or you lose your way. And I think that action and can, this technique of backwards and forwards can actually help you identify where you want to place focus. Um, I want to mention inciting incident. It's fairly clear, but I, I will mention it anyway. The inciting incident of a story is the event that sets the the main character or characters on a journey that will occupy them through the narrative. Um, the inciting incident changes life of character, and the story is what follows from that inciting incident. Fairly straightforward. It's what launches the main action, and usually occurs in the first act, um, according to uh, people uh, who believe in 
inciting incident exposition, rising action comes at the midpoint, climax, and then denouement. So this is like a very, very super standard. So act one is inciting incident and exposition, act two is rising action and the midpoint, and act three, you get the climax and denouement. That's three act structure right there. Um, Uh, the inciting incident occurs within the first act. It means something significant for the main character, most likely impacting their entire life. Uh, you know, um, the inciting incident is not always the first thing that happens, by the way. Um, it is what triggers the primary action. So there may be some backstory or buildup before you get to the inciting incident. Uh, there may be a conversation or scene leading up to it. Um, but the inciting incident still does what it needs to do. Um, the hook for a story is the opening scene. It's what catches a reader's attention. Um, the hook is not the inciting incident, right? So the hook is just a way to engage an audience, to catch a reader or audience's viewer's attention, to get them in the door. In other words, get them into the game. The inciting incident is what catalyzes the plot and solidifies that attention. Sometimes the hook and the inciting incident overlap, but the incident tends to require more exposition than the hook. So they're not synonymous, and I think that it's useful to, to kind of like not confuse them. Uh, the inciting incident usually involves some kind of clarity or realization for the main character. It creates some questions, but the, its main purpose structurally is to give your protagonist, if you're working with a protagonist, a distinctive path to follow, right? What is the path? Um, um, so, right, um, so I'll, um, I'll mention the Hunger, Hunger Games just for a second because that's a fairly common uh, thing in popular culture. So while many inciting incidents are life-changing, they can also be the opposite. Uh, negative, incident, negative incidents are often more dramatic and reader-enticing. So um, a character gets sick or disappears, right? So Katniss um, Everdeen takes her sister's place in the Hunger Games. Is a, that would be considered a negative incident, right? But it heightens the stakes and gets the ball rolling on the plot, making the e readers eager to know what will happen next. So her sacrifice for Prim isn't a revelation. It serves a narrative purpose uh, and, making us, and makes us root for Katniss and become more invested in her. I volunteer, right, is what she says. Um, The inciting incident uh, will change your protagonist's life. So, you know, this is the moment like the audience has been waiting for, and it sort of launches the plot. It's the jumping off point for the main character's arc and development. Um, and, you know, it, it's useful to have urgency around this. Use some external forces to sort of make this happen. 
Um, for example, in the Wizard of Oz, you know, Dorothy's house is carried off by a tornado, like literally a force of nature that lands her in Oz. It gives that this incident creates a new mission for her to return home um, and compels her to travel to the Emerald City. Um, now, obviously, not all stories start with a big storm or but, you know, there are many sort of ways of thinking about external forces. It could be a mystical prophecy. It could be a dystopian government. It could even be like, uh, you know, somebody's uh, parental figure kicking them out of the house. You know, something that changes that character's path, right? That then sets them on a new path. Um, and it does tap into this idea of trials and tribulations. The new path will test the character and will force them into the second act. Um, in in a lot of screenplays, people talk about the inciting incident happening early within the first twenty to thirty pages. Um, uh, obviously, for writing a shorter play, it needs to happen quicker. Um, but this is, you know, this is not a hard and fast rule. I would say it, it depends on the, on what you're working on. Um, but it does, it does help to know, um, when you're going to bring it in. Um, and you know, it's what thrusts the action and upsets the character's status quo. So that's a, that's a great way of thinking about the inciting incident. Um, and you know, I mean, it, it's sort of odd because I think that it's a, it's a trope and it's a mechanical one, um, but it's a useful one. You know, again, if you're thinking hero's journey, if that's something you're interested in here, it's basically hero's journey, right? It's, it's hero's journey. It's the path. This is the struggle. Here's the incident that sets them on a path of knowledge trials and tribulations, the second act and the third act and the climax and denouement, right? Like this is like a, where it's a very, very standard structure and one that's worth um, looking at um, uh, as you build. Um, to, I've, I've been sort of running about for an hour now. I think I'll stop and I'll leave um, uh, reversals and subtext um, for another lecture, but for now, this has been um, some thoughts on Trigger and Keep, some thoughts on the inciting incident, uh, terms that you'll definitely come across in the land of uh, writing drama and useful ones to think about as you build your own work uh, and make decisions about how you're going to build it, basically, um, and, what, and you know what would be useful to you as you move forward. I think thinking hero's journey can be helpful. I also think that hero's journey is not the only way to think about structure. Um, it is it is very much um, uh, what has become, I should say, uh, very sellable structure. It's uh, most, most series have this uh, structure. Um, and a lot of films do and certainly a lot of plays. But it's definitely not the only way uh, to conduct events. And I, and I often think that sometimes the predominance of hero's journey has maybe uh, knocked off the pedestal 
to put it mildly, a lot of other kinds of structures that are not individual in nature, but are more communal in nature. Um, and, uh, and require uh, different thinking around the notion of trials and tribulation. Um, but it is a very useful, so I will say it's a useful paradigm. Uh, it's certainly one that um, you can have in your back pocket as a writer. Uh, because you may, you're going to be able to, you're going to have to know how to use it at some point or another, whether you're doing work for hire or whether you're assigned something to write or whether you yourself are working on a, on a script that requires um, the ability to pull off these moves, right? Um, like I said, you know, I think Pinter is a great writer to look at for this because the attack in his work is so strong. Uh, and so elegant. Uh, and he was a poet of the theater. So I think there's also the, been a beauty um, of an understanding of the depth of his writing and also uh, and a, a complete understanding of action. And he was an actor. So I think that he knew from the inside what drove, what kind of was something that what drove action forward and how to play with those spaces of uncertainty and Suspense, right? And he does a lot of it in some of his um, more mysterious plays. You know, he plays a lot with, you know, what is reliable and what are we seeing and whose journey is it and how we're going to feel at the end of the day and how he really mines tension and release uh, as a strategy and still goes forward in his writing. Uh, it's really, really clever uh, and also profound, you know, uh, and elemental. So all useful. Thanks for listening.